Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week, I sit down with IEX head of product, Matt Trudeau. During our conversation, Matt talks about the genesis of IEX, its goals in changing high-frequency trading, and the impact of Michael Lewis's Flash Boys on this new financial startup. Welcome to the show. Today I'm sitting down with Matt Trudeau, who is the head of product at IEX. We're in Manhattan. And Matt, uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you for taking the time just to sit down and talk to us and have the listeners learn a little bit about what you guys are doing here. Um, I'd love to start just by asking a general question about IEX, the Investors Exchange, and talk about the difference between what IEX is compared to historic dark pools or historic trading methods? The, uh, so, so first of all, just a quick background on, on what we are. So we're what's known as an alternative trading system. Functionally, we look and act a lot like an exchange, but we're not a full-fledged registered stock exchange. So we have a technology platform. It's called the Matching Engine, and that is essentially the same thing that modern exchanges run. So the uh, the image that you may have of the New York Stock Exchange floor is, is largely uh, – stock trading doesn't really take place on exchange floors any longer. It takes place out in data centers out uh, in New Jersey for the most part. So what's different about us? Well, before IEX launched, you had about 45 other dark pools owned by either an individual broker or a consortium of, bro- consortium of brokers – uh, also, alternative trading systems, but but got hung with this moniker, dark pools, uh, which sounds a lot more sinister than it really is. Ultimately, they're they're crossing networks that were designed to try to match up institutional uh, investors, buyers and sellers, away from the exchange, uh, because one of the things that you have to cope with when you're a large investor is. Uh, not giving up too much information about an investment that about a trade that you're trying to do because if the market becomes aware that you're a large buyer or seller, uh, that may have an adverse impact on the price that you ultimately are able to buy or sell the stock for. Uh, so there are about 45 dark pools that were launched before IEX. For the most part, they looked the same. So they were an individual broker's attempt to solve a problem that really is very challenging for an individual broker to solve. And the reason for that is that an individual broker can only match its own clients within the confines of a, of a, a dark pool. Uh, it's very difficult to get multiple brokers to coordinate and cooperate to trade in each other's dark pools. Uh, so let me uh, just give a, a couple of the premises for, for running one of these things in the first place. Number one was this notion of matching up large buyers and sellers, institutional interest. Uh, or institutional uh, investors that are looking to buy and sell stock. And then the other is for the broker to save on exchange fees. So if I'm a broker and I've got the buyer and the seller, I'd rather be able to match them up directly versus having to go out to the exchange and and pay a commission to the exchange. Uh, So what ends up happening is the broker has this incentive to want to trade as much as it can in its own pool to save as much as it possibly can on exchange fees. Uh, And as a result, there can be a tendency to hoard orders in the broker's own pool, they don't want to share with each other. And so the consequence of that is buyers and sellers get isolated in all these different 45 or so pools around the... So when you think of an exchange, its, it's function generally is to bring buyers and sellers together 
And when you have what's referred to as a fragmented market where you have buyers and sellers now distributed across 45 different trading venues, they may not find each other. So, so getting back to what's different about IEX, we looked at this and we thought this is not really, you know, the, the, this might be a competitive market, but it's not really an efficient market. So how can we solve some of these problems? One way in which we solve that is IEX is a broker-neutral venue, meaning that uh, all of our clients are brokers. They can bring their buyers and sellers to trade on IEX. It solves the problem of, of the sharing issue because the, the broker is not enabling a competitor uh, by trading in, their, in the competitor's dark pool. Uh, and we've priced our market in a way where the broker gets the same pricing benefits. If they match buyer and seller, uh, if the broker matches both the buyer and seller on IEX, they, they're not charged for that trade. Uh, so that, that's sort of some of the ways in which we're different. More, I think more philosophically, uh, dark pools are dark, and historically they haven't really shared a lot of information about the way that they operate. So how does the matching logic work? Who are the customers? Does the broker have a proprietary trading unit that trades in the pool? Uh, there are a number of things that you just didn't know, and it was very hard to get that information. So one of the very first things we did prior to our launch was we published what's called our Form ATS. So this is the document that all dark pools need to file with the SEC that describes in a fair bit of detail how the market operates, uh, who its clients are, any affiliates to that broker that may be trading in the market. We were the Of, of those 45 pools that launched before IEX, we were the first and only to ever publish that document. And we made it available on the website for anybody to download, whether it be another broker or a person from Main Street, whomever. Uh, since we've done that, about another, I think, six or seven dark pools have published that form. Uh, and again, this is, you know, these are pools that have been in operation probably in some cases for more than a decade. Uh, now we have started to follow our lead, and that's a first step towards one of our guiding principles, which is transparency. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I, you know, those are, that's a lot there, but that, those are some of the ways in which we're different. And so for, for an average person that would be interested in knowing how this might affect their investments, the people that often are investing in these, these exchanges are part of mutual funds and pension plans, and, you know, they might be a very small part of a much larger purchase, but how would it affect an, an individual person? And, and frankly, how much money might they be able to save or, or earn given, given the IEX's offerings? Yeah, it's a really good question. So the, the you know, the, the, the quantum is, is difficult to estimate uh, because one of the issues that I think we face as an industry is, is an inability to access data. Mm -hmm. So notwithstanding the fact that Wall Street produces vast quantities of data to get data in a uniform, uh, high fidelity, granular, robust format that that can be analyzed to even get at maybe what are some of these costs is very, very difficult. Uh, and you're right. When you look at who is, you know, who is this potentially affecting, you, you think of the retail investor maybe as somebody who's trading through an online broker, discount brokerage account, but but they're also investing money with, with uh, with mutual funds and pension funds. And those are the, the, the institutions that typically tend to trade with brokers who operate dark pools. So how, how might they be affected? Well, on an individual basis, uh, we are in many cases talking about pennies on a trade, but these transaction costs represent a friction in the market that can add up over time. 
And one of our, again, one of our, I think, guiding philosophies here is, is around the principles of the thing. So uh, one of the questions we often get asked is, okay, well, if I'm an individual investor and I'm losing a penny or two on a trade, why does that matter? Why should I really care? Uh, you know, the cost of trading has, has come down dramatically in the last 20 years. Or, uh, you know, if I'm just part of this big mutual fund and, and there's, there are some pennies being lost on transactions, what does that mean to me? And it's this, this concept of a distributed loss or a distributed negative consequence uh, to a number of people with a concentrated benefit to a few where technology has enabled individual players to sort of aggregate up all those pennies and, and it becomes a lot of money. Uh, the, again, the exact number very difficult to, uh, to pinpoint, but estimates have it in the billions of dollars a year. I want to talk about the law a little bit. I mean, you, you, you were mentioning that you were the first exchange, if I heard you correctly, you were the first, first exchange to really become transparent about how your dark pool operated. Prior to that, was not revealing that information perfectly legal, ambiguous, or, or illegal? It's actually, it, it was and continues to be perfectly legal. So the, the form ATS that we've published is, a, is what is considered a confidential document. It has to be lodged with the SEC, so the SEC must review it. Right. But, but an, an alternative trading system operator is under no obligation to publish that form. You know, we, are, we took the view that we don't have anything to hide. We're, you know, we're very happy about the cleanliness of our operation, if you will. Uh, we're not doing anything that we have any qualms about disclosing to people. So we were happy to publish that form. Mm -hmm. and, and I would even go so far as to say that of the forms that have been published, ours is the most detailed and the most descriptive of, of how things operate. Uh, so, again, it becomes a question of their rules. And by and large, uh, most people operate within the structure of those rules. There are some areas where there's maybe a bit of grayness. Mm -hmm. And... And that's where things get a little bit more interesting because you may be operating according to the letter of the law, maybe not according to the spirit of the law. And we've tried to take the view that we want to operate according to the spirit of the law. Let's talk about your team here. I think I heard that you guys are 36, 37 employees total at this point. Are you all Wall Street guys? I mean, are you, are you mathematicians? How did the... I, I, in the book, I know Flash Boys, they talked a little bit about the, the initial inception of, of the company, but did you all know each other? How did, how did the, the genesis of, of bringing together IEX actually happen? Yeah, so we have, I think one of the most interesting things about this company is the team. So by and large, it's Wall Street veterans, and you've got people, you know, I would say probably the average tenure is, uh, is in the 10 to 15 years range. So uh, most of us have worked on Wall Street long enough to become jaded and, and probably even, uh, you know, just acclimated to the culture of Wall Street. Certainly not a group of, of naive individuals, uh, you know, maybe naive enough to, to take this on and, uh, you know, not really give a lot of thought to the magnitude of what we're trying to do. But uh, even though, you know, in the back of our minds, it's certainly there. But the, the team, for the most part, uh, everybody in the room is a one degree of separation referral or, or draw uh, of somebody else in the room. So you have the core founding team, the four guys from RBC they a few more people came over from RBC, and then, you know, for instances, I know Ronan Ryan, who's the chief strategy officer, just 
as a you know an industry relationship from many years ago where uh, where he was in a different environment he was working as a sales person for a data center infrastructure provider and he and I got to know each other uh, and just managed to maintain that relationship we you know we got along well we maintained the relationship over the years and so as we started to construct the team it was really about finding people who were very good at what they did uh, who had a lot of flexibility so especially as a startup you know we've said many times that you need people that are you know we, we jokingly refer to ourselves as Swiss army knives where everybody can can perform multiple functions which is critical early on uh, and but maybe even most importantly had a similar philosophical mindset because what we were trying to take on here we all understood was not going to be easy and for the most part people walked away from really you know well compensated jobs to do this where there was no guarantee that this was going to be successful uh, and then beyond that you've got so you asked you know what what are the what's the skill set of the people here one other thing that I think is really unique about this team is it's a cross-section of the industry. So we have people who previously worked at exchanges, other alternative trading systems, broker-dealers, uh, high-frequency trading firms. And then within that, there's expertise in engineering. So we've got software developers. We've got people who uh, manage uh, infrastructure, so the technology systems, the networking, uh, quantitative analysts, product people course salespeople. So you, you bring together a group of people that have worked in different verticals within the industry who have different technical skill sets, if you will, and you put them all in a room. And I think that's, that's the kind of environment that you don't typically see on Wall Street. And that's an output of that environment has been a lot of the insights that we've developed mm -hmm. about you know starting to connect dots as each of us put our, our little piece of the puzzle in the picture started to become much more clear as to just you know where some of these problems were, things that, that individually we had never understood the consequences of. Suddenly we realized, and you know that fueled a lot of really uh, a lot of really interesting discussions and insights. You know, you, you mentioned getting acclimated to the culture and the fact that most of the people on the team are veterans. They've been here for five, ten, fifteen years. Do, was there a hunger? Do you think in Wall Street there is a hunger for? reform for joining companies that they that people believe are noble that they can go home at Christmas time and tell their families about and make make grandpa and grandma proud do you think is, has that changed is that something that's that's new because of the financial collapse or how do you how do you read that yeah I, I actually so a couple things that I think that Wall Street in a lot of ways has gotten a bad rap and it's in part because of the handful of people who have made you know, who have been responsible for a lot of the, the sort of steady stream of headlines that we see about scandals and fraud and, and all the negative stuff that comes out of Wall Street. One of the things that's been really exciting and interesting about being a part of this, especially now that we've gained some prominence and, and people are starting to become aware of who we are and what we're doing, is just the amount of inbound calls. You know, we've gotten, I think, a couple thousand resumes from people all over Wall Street. So you have these people... And I think they're probably in the majority who who would prefer to do something that they're proud of, who don't necessarily buy into this just greed for the sake of greed and, and winning at all costs type of a mentality that does exist on Wall Street. Uh, and they see us, you know, for better or worse, as almost a standard bearer now, somebody who 
who is who has the momentum, has the team, has the resources and 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 the traction to tell a different story about Wall Street. You know, I think when we think about what does Wall Street represent, it shouldn't be this this fat cat greed, you know, image that everybody has. It should be this is the engine that drives the economy. This is what creates wealth and prosperity throughout the US. And you can't discount that. So if we could if we could remove some of the you know the, the more tarnished versions of it uh, and focus on what is the value that Wall Street creates, there are a lot of people within the Wall Street community who A go to work every day with that mindset and B uh, want to to continue to see that kind of a, a cultural shift throughout the street. I know, at least in part, that you're an anthropologist by trade, and, and you just alluded to some of your analysis of Wall Street as a whole just now. Do you think that is it does the greed that exists is it just because they're catchy headlines and people know more about them, or is it more ubiquitous than that? I mean, is is that a a noticeable component of Wall Street that any incoming analyst who works at the major banks would notice pretty quickly, or is it much more complicated than that? You know, I think. One of the challenging things about about Wall Street is incentives. So, whenever you see bad behavior, if you if you look at the incentive structure, there's usually a cause and effect relationship. Uh, you know, for any young kid coming up out of undergrad who comes to work on Wall Street, and you quickly start to see the the, the levels of compensation that. That's uh, just you know there's an order of magnitude difference on Wall Street than it is in, in many other industries, and when you start to realize that that's accessible to you, it becomes a very difficult I think thing to to not just get swept up in. You know when you're when you're very young and you and you start to see uh, you start to see your compensation swelling, and then you can see that it can get bigger and bigger and bigger, and the, you know that's another reason why I think it's it's very difficult for. Uh, for people to leave Wall Street once they've gotten in, because even if they don't necessarily like what they're doing anymore, it's just hard to walk away from that compensation. You just don't. It's just you become you become adjusted to a certain lifestyle, and it's just really hard to walk away from that. Uh, so I think it has a lot to do with the incentive structure, but I don't think there's anything inherently. You know, the, the, there are lots of good people that work on Wall Street. And I don't think there's, you know, anything inherently wrong with the people that are here. It's just I think it has a lot to do with the incentives. It could be tough at this point to not to talk about IEX and not at least mention Flash Boys. Um, I think the book went immediately to number one in the New York Times bestseller. It did very quickly after it was released. Where were you guys when that book came out? I mean, do you remember Michael Lewis walking around the office and is at that point as a young startup, is everybody thinking, my God, this this is going to propel us into a different national discussion than we are right now. What was that period of time like? Yeah, it's, uh, that's an interesting question. So the the you know the background is it initially started as just that background on an article that Michael Lewis was writing for Vanity Fair, uh, and it, it sort of evolved over the course of a year. Now, you know, to put that in context, we were trying to launch a new business, launch a new market. Uh, we had a monster amount of work to do, and so it was sort of interesting, but it was off to the side, really. You know, Michael Lewis would come in and talk to some of us, and it wasn't really clear exactly what he was doing. You know, it started as an article, then it evolved into maybe an article about IEX, then maybe a book about uh, U.S. market structure, and then it wasn't until 
honestly, it wasn't until the very end when the book became published. Uh, in fact, it wasn't until the, uh, the index of the book was leaked on Google that we had any idea really just how prominently IEX would be featured. So we thought this was going to be a book about market structure, which we thought would be helpful to us. But at the same time, we were just focused on trying to get this business up and running. So sure, was there a little bit of, uh, you know, the, the, you know, having the celebrity writer in the office? I mean, sure, there, I think all of us were probably at times, uh, it just seemed bizarre, if, if nothing else. Uh, it was also exciting to know that a, a guy as prominent and as successful as Michael Lewis took an interest in what we were doing. You know, it, it was maybe confirmation that what we were working on was important. Mm. I'd love to learn about also the, you, I think the word incentives is prominent, I think, in the book and also in relation to learning about what IEX does. And in the book, I know he, he talks about the way that you guys have incentive, incentivized your backers to not, not be so interested in your benefiting or your success that it would corrupt the company as a whole. Um, can you talk about the difference in which the incentives for your backers are maybe different than some of the other exchanges that ex- that exist on Wall Street? Yeah, sure. So, the, so the the ownership structure is actually one of I think our you know the key differentiators for us. So, when you look at the other at the other alternative trading systems, again, for the most part, they're owned by an individual broker or consortium of brokers, and if you're the owner of a market, you're likely going to want to structure that market and operate that market in a way that maximizes the benefit to you. So early on, we made the decision that we were not going to let brokers own any part of IEX, uh, which was not an easy decision because uh, it forced that, that cut off a big, a big source of potential capital for us, and the brokers have an appetite for investing in uh, alternative trading systems it's it's very clear there you know there are 45 of them out there that have all been funded by brokers so we cut off a big swath of, of Wall Street that we no longer had access to for funding uh, and then another thing that we did was said okay well if we're if we're not going to take money from them and we're going to take it only from the buy side one thing we could have done buy side being the institutional investors one thing that we could have done was just cut the brokers out of the picture and said, We'll just let the the institutional investors trade directly on IEX. But the problem with that is that the brokers do play an important function in the market. They provide research and banking services, and and there's a lot more that they do besides just matching trades. Mm -hmm. So we said, how do we create a balanced structure that tries to align the incentives to the extent that we possibly can? So we'll have the institutional investors fund our company, so they're effectively the owners of IEX, and then we'll allow only brokers to become direct clients of IEX. And then the institutional investors are, in turn, clients of the broker. So with this structure, uh, it's different from any other alternative trading system that's ever been launched, to my knowledge, where the the investors own it, the brokers are the customers, and it's and so it creates this balance of incentives uh, that allows us to continue to operate the market in the interest of the end investor, but at the same time servicing the broker who's ultimately our client. And here we are. I mean, I think it's maybe a year from your launch, maybe a little bit more than that. How's the company doing? We're doing great. So we're, we're actually about, uh, we're, we're eight months and change into operations. Uh, our growth trajectory is, uh, we're still, you know, we're, we're at about 85 basis points of market share uh, in that range, which is not quite 1%. Mm-hmm. 
which in the grand scheme of things is, is small. Uh, we still have a long way to go, but our growth trajectory as compared to you know, comparable businesses that have launched is, is, uh, is very encouraging. So it took others much longer to get to the point where we are today. Uh, we, the volumes are trending up, so business continues to grow. We've had a lot of, uh, a lot of interest from we're, we're looking to raise another round of capital, uh, start, which will allow us to start down the path of becoming a full-fledged stock exchange. Uh, so that, in part, was catalyzed by some inbound interest from investors. So you know, certainly the press and the story about, from Michael Lewis obviously got us a lot of attention. Uh, but beyond that, we're still just we still have to block and tackle and, and build the business. I mean, the, you know, the press doesn't press gets you attention. It doesn't necessarily build a successful business. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would say that on on pretty much all on all measures right now, the business is doing really really well. You mentioned Main Street earlier in the interview, and I, I wanted to wanted to get your guys' perspective on this. Do you? see yourselves in a way of trying to bridge the gap between Wall Street and Main Street, or do you not think of yourselves in those terms? I mean, it, it seems like something like this or a movement like this is, for from the perspective of average people, a virtuous endeavor, whether it is incredibly successful long-term or not. Is, is that the spirit of the company? Is that how you guys would like to be seen by the public? Yeah, I think, you know, we're, we try to be logical, rational people and look at how do we build a business ethically, uh, which is really, I think, what, what Main Street's looking for. You know, I mean, we have, we, our careers have been made in Wall Street, but, you know, we all have friends and family who are Main Street people, you know, firefighters, teachers, uh, you know, other business people. And it, it's, I think, you know, I'll speak for myself, but, but probably, you know, most in the room would agree with me. It seems inconsistent to come to work every day and find ways to screw all the people that you then go home and socialize with on the weekends who you consider your friends or your family. Uh, it, it just that doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. So when you think about the, the grander scheme of things and, and you think about what is it that we're trying to do here and can, we, can it be something that we're proud of? Can it be something that we're comfortable talking to our children about? Mm-hmm. And can it be something that we're... You know that you're comfortable talking to your mom about, for example. <clears throat> what does that look like? You know, do, does it is it how do I find ways to skim as much as I can? Is it, you know in a way that nobody notices while enriching myself, and or can I take a different view and say, can I? And look, we're all capitalists here, mm-hmm. so everybody in, in you know, nobody's here doing this for charity, so. Ultimately, we want this to be successful. We would like to make some money. We would like this. To, we would like to grow this into a very profitable business. But can can we can we do both? Can we grow a successful, profitable business that's accretive to the U.S. economy and 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 helps the you know and helps people grow their wealth and their prosperity in terms of their retirement and things? Do, do we have to do we have to win at somebody else's expense, or can we win and they win? I think we've we've taken the latter view. How has the reaction by Wall Street changed? I mean, I would imagine for a lot of people, this company is viewed as a real threat. Um, has the tone altered since the beginning and the launch of, of, the, of the company, or is it still vitriolic and hostile by the majority of Wall Street or a significant portion of Wall Street? Well, I think there was definitely a very strong reaction to us, uh, especially right after the book came out, and I think a lot of that had to do with... Uh, 
assumptions that people were making or just getting caught up in the headlines. So, <clears throat> for example, a, a lot of the, the early discussion about the Michael Lewis book was from involved a bunch of people who hadn't read the book. So everybody had an opinion on it, but nobody had read it. And they, they jumped to a bunch of conclusions about who we were, what we were doing, you know, why we were doing it. And, and so the rhetoric was quite heated at times. And I think that that was just because a lot of people were ignorant to the truth as we've, you know, again, we've, we've tried to be very logical, very methodical, very rational in our approach. We've tried to, you know, we, we've been accused of, of uh, being anti-technology or anti-computerization, that we want to roll back the clock, that, you know, that we're fear-mongering and that a lot of this is marketing spin. But when people, <coughs> excuse me, when we actually have an opportunity to, to bring people in, and talk to them and explain what we're doing when we walk them through the technology, the architecture, how we've structured the market, the way that it operates, what we're doing, why we're doing it. A lot of people have, I think, their view has has turned around because they realize, you know, these guys aren't, they're not, you know, they're not on the fringe over here, you know, in crazy land talking about things that don't make any sense. We, we've actually designed a market that a lot of people, industry experts, look at and say, that makes a lot of sense. That doesn't mean that they want us to be successful because ultimately we're still a threat to certain lines of business where they make good money. So even if they don't disagree with the model or, or think that we've actually designed something that makes a lot of sense, we still have our work cut out for us to get them uh, to, to, to build this business and get them to use our platform. Hmm. Last question I want to ask you is about the future. If, if this company becomes what everybody in the room hopes it will become in 5, 10, 20 years, what will that look like? And what would, what would your, the 36, 37 people who work here, work here deem a success? Yeah, it's a great question. I think all of us would, would like to see the attitude change towards one of, of stewardship you know it's probably a cultural shift you know I, I guess I'll speak again for myself I'd love to see a cultural shift where Main Street no longer looks at Wall Street and just has the starting assumption that whoever walks on, works on Wall Street is there to try to to screw Main Street uh, if that if that changes and part of that's a cultural change where uh, where Wall Street can look at themselves as the stewards of of American prosperity I think that would be a huge success. Uh, you know, people on Wall Street can still make money, but if they can do it in a way that, that maximizes the prosperity of, of everybody else, that would be a huge success. You know, beyond that, we have a lot of talented people in the room. Uh, you know, my, uh, my long-term secret wish would be that this company is really successful to the point where we have the East Coast equivalent of the PayPal mafia where you've got uh, a group of people who do well and then take what they've learned and, and take the the philosophy that they've got and they go out and start other companies that then spawn other companies and then that starts to just spread further and further into the you know into the US economy and especially on the East Coast uh, that would be a huge success it might be Matt thank you so much for coming on the show and thanks My for pleasure. Your thanks for having me Thanks for listening. 
If you're interested in learning more about The Exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com. Thank you.